Guys, we are in Acts chapter 6, and this is a really important chapter for the church, and it's an important chapter for men. It's an important chapter for everybody, because what has been happening, as you've noticed, in Acts 1 through 5, the church is growing rapidly. It's very dynamic uh, because of the preaching of Jesus Christ through the apostles. Folks are clamoring to hear the gospel. Healings are taking place as the ministry of mercy from Christ goes out to the people as well as the ministry of eternal salvation. And folks are coming. And what we've seen is as soon as that happens, we get resistance (laughs) big time. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, has sought to destroy the preaching and destroy the church. And they've been very aggressive in it as we've seen in the way that they've dealt with the apostles. We saw in these past weeks that that didn't work very well, that when the devil sought to inspire the Sanhedrin, the religious body of their time, to oppose these crazy Jesus preachers, that it only made them worse. (laughs) It only made them more powerful preachers. It only served to purify and purge the church of its hypocrites. So the opposition that was being provided by local uh, religious leaders only proved to purify and strengthen and expand the church. So what we see in chapter 6 is that the devil is going to switch his tactics because his opposition to the work of the church is incessant. It has been going on ever since God saved anybody, namely Adam and Eve, uh, after they were ushered out of the garden. The devil has been opposing the growth of God's people ever since. He always will, and he will shift his strategies, but the ultimate goal is the same, the destruction of the church. So we we will see suffering, affliction, opposition to the church externally, all the way from Jerusalem to Rome, and there will be dead bodies the whole way. We'll also see not only opposition to the church from the outside, but here today we begin to see the opposition from the inside. Now we had a little bit of this in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. There was a sense in which that was an attack from the inside of the church through hypocrisy. Now we're going to see an attack upon the church through division. And the devil knows that if he can get these Christians fighting with each other, they won't have time to minister to anybody outside the church. That's the master strategy. That's the devil's strategy, and he does it all the time. Uh, we have uh, here at Second Presbyterian, we, we've had seven major epicenters internationally where we have holistic work of preaching and teaching and social ministries and, and uh, church planting, evangelism, discipleship, all of it all tied together. We have about seven of those. We had seven. We now have six. And the reason is simply church division. Division among leaders, uh, people at each other, against each other, and division within the church, and the thing dissolves. And you see that happening around Memphis as well, don't you? So we need to take very seriously uh, this attempt by the evil one to undermine the work of the kingdom, and we need to take very seriously how leaders like yourselves look at situations like that, size them up, and come up with solutions that make a difference, and I mean a big difference. And that's what we're going to see in our uh, text today because 
you see this massive strategy by the devil, but then you see the church leaders wisely addressing it and blessing not only the church of their day, but the church for centuries to come. It's amazing how when we face opposition, it causes us either to purify and strengthen our theology, which is what the early heresies in the church did. It caused us to state our theology more clearly. I mean, that's where the Nicene Creed comes from. It comes from answering heretics. And that's how we get the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and all the rest, and all the ecumenical councils. Uh, we also see how the church is strengthened in its boldness, as we've already seen in chapters uh, 3 and 4. When we get opposition and we get affliction and people beating up on us, we get bolder. So we get stronger, we get purer, we get truer, we get bolder when we face opposition successfully. When we don't face opposition successfully, we get weaker. And we're just one generation away from disappearing. So let's take a good look at this text, learn the lessons that we should learn, and also just from the type of men that are chosen for this task as the solution to the devil's strategy, we're going to see we have all kinds of lessons about how men ought to be making a difference in community uh, as well as in church in our own day. Let's look at Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, the first thing I want us to notice is that successful evangelism often disturbs the church's order. Successful evangelism often disturbs the church's order. You think, well, shoot, if we're being faithful in evangelism, wouldn't that make us a more peaceful, joyful, unified church? No, it's usually just the opposite. When you're really successful in reaching the lost, guess who becomes members of your church? People who were lost yesterday. People who had all these unbelievable lifestyles. People who did all kinds of things the old way. And they're having to learn the new way. And they cause all kinds of problems. Guess what happens when you evangelize with the love of Christ? You bring people into your church that don't look like you. Because the love of Christ crosses all kinds of boundaries. So you're going to bring people into your church that aren't like you. And they don't think like you. They don't have your cultural background. And so you're just going to create all kinds of different ideas about how church ought to be run. Because most of what we do when we get into community is we just use our gut instincts. Most people don't go to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say? No, they just run things the way that their mama taught them. 
And everybody's mama taught them differently. So if you're really filled with the Spirit and you're doing the work of evangelism, you're going to bring in people with rotten, dirty backgrounds, and you're going to bring in people with different cultural backgrounds from your own. Man, you got all kinds of problems. And here you see them in this text. Number one, because of cultural diversity. We have a complaint by the Hellenists. Who are the Hellenists? The Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jewish people. And they're called Hellenists because to be a Hellenist means to be Greek. You know, in your fraternity council, you remember the, the inner fraternity council was often called the Hellenic council. It just means Greek council. So here the Greek speakers are having a dispute with the Hebrew or Aramaic speakers. And this is more than just having a language barrier. This is a cultural barrier. And it's more than just a cultural barrier. It's a political barrier. Because you remember in the 2nd century B.C., the Greeks came into Israel, conquered them, uh, set up the abomination uh, that uh, leads to desolation in the sanctuary, put up a statue of Zeus, offered pigs as sacrifices, burned Bibles everywhere. Those are the Greeks. And so now you're going to be a Hellenist because the Hellenists are intellectually sophisticated. Because the Hellenists were powerful. Because the Hellenists were in political dominance. So now you're going to be a cultural Hellenist. Well, aren't you cute? Uh, and you're a Jew, and you've now gone over to adopt all of the Hellenistic ways. And so there's obviously some resentment politically. And, of course, the Romans are in control now, but that just happened, you know, 100 years before. You go back before that, it was, it was the Greeks who were, who were abusing the Israelites. So here you have... Two groups who've come into the church from the outside and they're very different culturally. And you know as well as I do that in your uh, businesses where you have conflict, you have two different types of conflict. One is subjective. Those are the things that have to do with someone's personality or background or instincts or cognitive styles, things like that. Those are the hardest conflicts of all to resolve because you rarely get to the bottom of the, of the issue. That's the reason we take these personality tests and try to compare them with each other so that we can understand each other because some of us are Hellenists and some of us are Hebraic. And so you have these massive differences that are immediately brought into the church. And see, they are brought into the church. We're not going to be afraid of cultural differences. We're not going to build a church that's just like my immediate neighborhood or like my extended family because that doesn't represent the love of Christ. The love of Christ goes to all nations. And if we have all nations in our community, that's where the love of Christ should go. And the love of Christ should go there and invite those people into the same functioning body as much as possible. Now, of course, I mean, if you take some of our Hispanic ministry, we have people, first-generational Hispanics, who really don't speak English or don't speak it very well. So they have their own service in their language. But gradually, what are we trying to do? Trying to bring them into the Anglo service, the, whether it's African-American or European-American or Asian-American, we're bringing them into an, a, a, an integrated approach to worship. That's got to be our strategy. Why? Because that's the love of Christ. And we, we're always creating chaos. If nobody else does it, we're supposed to be doing it. And here's what's happened in our time, in our culture, in our nation. It is the secularists who have done more of this than the church has. And notice here, it's just the opposite. The church is doing what the culture couldn't do. So we really need to take a, a page out of the Bible here, frame it, 
put it on the wall and see how we can imitate it. But we're going to have chaos because of cultural diversity. We should expect it. We should be ready to minister to it. We should almost thank God for it because that means something. It means we're alive and that we're reaching people and that they feel like coming into the family of God. So cultural diversity or subjective conflict is the beginning of it, but that's not the end of it. It's also because of injustices. This is called objective conflict. That is, there's an issue that one can clearly identify where we disagree. So you have subjective conflict, objective conflict. If you'd like more on that, let me know. I can send you some things on it. It might help you in your own conflict resolution in your setting. But you have to be aware of both sources of conflict, and boy, are they both here. And here you have an issue of injustice. And the issue is that the widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, we don't know why this was happening, but one can imagine that the beginning of the gospel success was dominantly with the Hebraic-speaking or the Aramaic-speaking Jewish folks. So they were the original dominant group. They're in charge. The Hellenists begin coming to Christ. They're what you'd call initially a minority. They speak a different language. They think a different way. And so some of the Aramaic people who were resentful of, he of Greek culture didn't even bother to learn the language, even though it was the language of the academy. They didn't bother to learn it. So these people over here had needs. Speaking in Greek, these people didn't even understand them and didn't go to the trouble to try to understand them. It was benign negligence at the best. It could have been worse. It could have been people who were playing their family favorites. Aunt Martha has a need. We only have so much money. I know these other two people over here I don't know very well. They have a need too, but I know Aunt Martha. I'm taking care of her. That's typically what happens, that our, our Christian love flows right down the old bloodlines, and blood runs thicker than water, even the waters of baptism in the church often, and that's what was happening here, so that a whole ethnic group was being dealt with unjustly, either intentionally or un unintentionally, but I tell you what, if you're a Greek-speaking Jew, it didn't matter whether it was intentional or unintentional, our widows aren't getting supplies. They're hungry. So there was an objective issue of injustice, and this happens in the church. Why? Because we all play our favorites. You know, I sell insurance, and my customer has a need. So I'm going to be sure my customer or my patient or my client or my professor gets taken care of. And we all tend to play our favorites rather than asking ourselves, what does the gospel demand in this situation? And that's what men are supposed to do. They're supposed to bring justice to bear on every situation. And we must look at our city the same way. Instead of just accepting the status quo, the way things have always been and what your grandfather taught you, we need to ask something. What would the gospel demand in Memphis? If Jesus were our mayor and the city council and the court system all put together, what would he do? How would he fix it? What injustices would he address? And the church mentality has got to work this way. Instead of letting ourselves being co-opted by our favorite friends, our favorite ethnic groups, our favorite family connections, and our business connections. There's got to be a breakthrough in terms of how we deal with people and how we see injustices and address them. Because I tell you what, right here in Acts chapter 6, this was the devil's strategy. 
He knows human nature better than we know it. He's been watching it for a long time. He has seen the intel of sin since Adam and Eve first took up the occupation. And he sees how sin works. And he knows our sinful nature is to play favorites and to be unjust. And he's just doing like this. Just can't wait to see how this is going to work. You know, it's going to be fireworks in the church. We're going to blow this thing up really good. We'll get these people together. If we can just get some different ethnic groups together, if we can just get some rich people with some poor people, if we can just get them together in the church, man, watch the fireworks. And he can't wait to see what's going to happen. And sure enough, what he had hoped for begins to happen. They are complaining against each other and against the apostles. And here's the big problem. The apostles were the primary, not the only, but the primary ministers of the word and the primary leaders in prayer in the church. And now what do they got to deal with? A major problem, a conflict that has both subjective and objective elements that's very complicated to deal with. And the church that's been growing through the preaching of the word is now massively threatened. Now look with me at verses 2 through 7, and we'll see what the answer is. Praise the Lord. Successful leadership restores the church's order. Successful leadership restores the church's order. Gentlemen, if you're in a church and it's out of order, guess whose fault it is? (laughs) It's the leader's. Every time. You say, oh, no, no, no. We had some squabbling women or squabbling families in our church. No, it wasn't our fault. Yes, it was. The responsibility lands at the feet of the leaders. So if you're a deacon or you're an elder or you're a trustee somewhere, uh, then you've got to take responsibility for the order of God's church because without order, we ain't doing anything on the outside. Everything we do is going to be on the inside. We're going to lose our outward face and our outward focus. And we're, not, we're going to stop thinking about lost people. And we're going to start thinking about Martha and Joe and Sue and Mary who are all tied up with each other in a knot. So leaders have got to take responsibility for the order of the church. And I want you to notice these guys did it big time and led to a, a, a beautiful solution that has blessed your church and mine if you're in a church uh, and the church is in this community through the centuries. Well, first of all, notice this in verse 2 and also in verse 4. Here's what the leaders did. They, they kept the main thing the main thing. They keep the main thing the main thing. They say it is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. It's not right that we should stop preaching in order to figure out this distribution problem. That's the first thing they noticed. They noticed right away the ultimate problem and the ultimate strategy of the enemy. They noticed it right away. This is an attack. This is to take us off our focus. And it's not right that we do that. You notice how they start with themselves. What's right for us in addressing this situation? Well, I'll tell you what's not right is that we cease ministering the Word of God, that we cease studying our Bible, that we cease praying. But you can pick up with verse 4, and you also see, here's what they say. We're going to devote ourselves to something. It's going to be first things. And these are the apostles, or we might say if you're a Presbyterian, it would be the elders. Uh, if you're a Baptist, I suppose you'd say this would be the pastors because they, they're the elders in your church. Whoever is responsible for the teaching ministry and the shepherding ministry in your church, whoever that is, they need to know what their first calling is. 
They need to know what number one business is, and they need to be able to recognize a distraction when, they, when it hits them. And here's what they're saying. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And gentlemen, there is a part of your life, whether you are paid to be a pastor or whether you are an elder in a church or not, there's the primary part of your life is to be devoted to the ministry of the Word and prayer. And whatever is right for you, here's what you're going to find. Massive distractions to keep you away from it. And you have to say to yourself all the time, I know what my first devotion is. And that's where we get the word devotions. It's because you're devoted to it. Because it's your first thing. And because you're not going to let something below that priority substitute for your first priority. And that's exactly the way these apostles respond. We're going to keep number one, number one. That we know. We don't know how to handle with squabbling Hellenists and Hebraic women yet. But here's what we do know. Number one is prayer and the Word. And these guys were in charge of it primarily in the church. So they took their role and their devotion to the Word and prayer, figured it out, and didn't let anything move them. And that's exactly what we've got to do. I mean, maybe you have your devotions in the morning. How many times do you get distractions in the morning? Or you have your devotions in the afternoon or the evening? How many times does the phone ring? Someone knock on the door? Chaos break loose? Uh, it's amazing what can happen. Your favorite college football game come on at the wrong time? I mean, it's amazing what will happen when you set, when you set devotions, when you're devoted to something. There'll be all kinds of interruptions. There's one thing you've got to know. This is number one. That I recognize. I'm going to do something about it. And that's what these men do, did. They kept the main thing, the main thing. They didn't allow themselves to be distracted. Now, I want you to notice uh, what they did. They, of course, are, uh, are appointing deacons. Now, the word deacon is not in here, but serving tables is the same word, diakonos. It's, it's a verb, verbal form. of de- It's like deaconing. We must not neglect the preaching of the word in order to deacon in the church. So let's talk a moment about what deacons are for. Deacons here, they're waiting on tables. They're helping with the distribution of the ministry of compassion, and they're resolving conflict. They're handling material things like money and facilities in our day, logistics, conflict, serving the people in the ministry of compassion. That's what a deacon does. And how often our deacons think of themselves as the equivalent of a finance committee. And if anybody thinks they're going to have anything to say about the finances besides us, they got somebody else to talk to. And we insulate ourselves, think of ourselves as officers with power over something, and heaven help the person who challenges us. That's not the way deacons functioned in the first century. The way deacons functioned in the first century was, let's help our preachers continue preaching. Let's help our monks continue to pray, if you will. Let's, let's, let's be sure. One thing let's be sure of, let's advance the ministry of prayer and the Word in the church. And we have some men in this church that are particularly gifted at it. My gift happens to be handling money, handling people, handling conflict, handling logistics. I'm going to use my gifts in order to advance the number one objective of the church. So if you're a man who likes to work with his hands and his feet who likes to work with the logistics and material property and things, praise God for you because the church is full of people like me (laughs) who would run us, uh, you know, into the shoals if I were running things. We need men 
who are able to do this. But the men who do it need to remember every moment, why are you doing it? To set your shepherds free so that they can preach the word and minister to people, lead them to Christ and disciple them. And so often I look at Baptist churches who have deacons as their primary unpaid office. And those deacons get this mentality. Well, we know why we're here. We've got to balance the power of the, of the pastor. You know, because if we don't assert ourselves, he'll run away with his church. Well, you know, sometimes actually that's true. <laughs> and, and pastors do need to be reined in. But let me tell you something. If you're a deacon, that's not your primary job. Do you think that's what these guys were saying? Well, you know, we've got these apostles. They think they're hot stuff on a stick. We've got to be sure that we balance them out and represent the people against them. Listen, if that's what you've got, you got yourself the wrong pastor. You got yourself the wrong apostle. You got yourself the wrong elders. That's what you need is more. You need different elders, different pastors. You need a pastor, and the pastor needs deacons. The elders need deacons who work together to keep the elders from being distracted. And if you are trying to oppose them and <clears throat> balance them out, you become the major distraction. You become the major worry of the pastor. He's got to handle you. And I see that happening in Baptist churches all throughout this city. And I just want to say to the men, stop it. you got the wrong paradigm. This is teamwork. To be a deacon doesn't mean to be a ruler. It means to be a servant. It's an office of service. So become an expert in serving. So that what the deacon ought to be saying to the elder or in the Baptist church to the pastor, pastor, elder, how can I get this off your plate? What can you give me? So that you can devote yourself to prayer. You guys need to be on your knees praying for this church. You guys need to be out there in te- leading small groups teaching this church. You need to be out there pastoring our broken marriages. What can I get off your desk? That's what deacons ought to be asking all the time. How can we take stuff? And when the elders, and I'm talking about Presbyterian churches now, when the elders are inclined not to do their work, which they are most often not inclined to do, And I'll tell you why. It's a matter of feeling successful. And elders are scared to death to be preachers, teachers, and pastors. Scares them to death. So what do they do? Well, they do what they know. What do they know? They know how to run a business. So you know what they end up doing? Deacons work. And you know who does the elders work? Pastors. And you know what the deacons do? They're still trying to figure it out. Deacons, let me tell you what you need to do. Give a word to the elders. Hey, guys, look, if you want to run the finances, of course, you you can do it. You're competent to do it. But it seems to us that you're wasting your time. The very reason I'm spending my time on this deacon group is so that you guys will get out there and preach and teach and pastor and pray. So if you're not going to get out there and do it, you all be the deacons and let's go look for some other elders. Now, you can say that. Get these guys back to work. Because we all tend to do what we think will be successful doing. We feel more comfortable there. And that's the reason that elder boards, sessions, and individual elders usually decline, move away from the ministry of the Word. You can see the kind of trouble the ministry of the Word gets you into. You can see how embarrassing it is when you're publicly opposed. You can see the price you're going to pay. So they tend to move away from it into something else. Deacons need to keep displacing them back into their role. And the elders need to know what they're doing. They need to get men and women, if you ordain women deacons, get these folks into ministries to help you out so that you can be about your business. And you'll notice then it's teamwork. And everybody has the same goal. 
And there are deacons who will become great preachers. I mean, we're going to see one in Stephen these next, this next session. Stephen was a mighty preacher. He was a deacon. Elisha was also a mighty preacher. But how he started out was just helping Elijah. You say, how did he help him? Washed his clothes, took care of him. Elisha served as a deacon, just learning from Elijah by walking around with him. And deacons, if you're a deacon in a church and you feel that you have the gift of teaching or preaching, then just simply serve someone who is teaching and preaching, learn from them, and gradually move into that ministry. Because what the church needs more than anything else is shepherds. People who will take that role. And all the rest of us have to do everything in our power to keep them in that role and keep them from being distracted. That's the way the deacons are supposed to work. That's the order that God has given us through this great decision by the apostles. It was an apostolic decision. Now, secondly, B, look in verse 3, and you'll see what else the, the leaders do to restore church order. They maintain the highest of standards for their leadership. They say, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit. These are not just men who are good bankers or good accountants or men who know how to solve problems. These are spiritually minded men. These are leaders. These are men who have qualifications that are at the highest level spiritually. Now, I'll tell you what happens to so many churches. Once again, that old good old boy network starts to work in your leadership selection process. I've been in nominating committees now for 30 years. And I see it happening every year. Someone will be thinking like a good old boy and they want to put their good old friend into office. And so they make a speech for him. And you can tell from the speech, it's not because... This man is of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a man of discernment. No, it's because he's my good old friend. Or someone will recommend a family member. Now we have a nepotism policy in our nominating committee. You can't, no one can be nominated who's an immediate family member of anybody on the committee. Because I've seen people recommend strongly their own family members. You'd think someone, that's a no-brainer. It's not a no-brainer. Because we're all men, and we have our own intuitive networks and good old boy systems and families. And what I find happening in churches is we abandon the biblical standards for leadership, and we start going with our own gut intuitions and what we would like to do, because we would like to be able to say to our friend, hey, I nominate you, man. And we have men who think that they ought to be officers because they've been attending for a long time and have been good boys. Instead of looking at the qualifications in terms of how we're gifted and what kind of track record we have in terms of leadership and looking at it in an arm's length way at the leadership of the church. Now, humanly speaking, under God and after the preaching of the word, this is the most important thing for the health of your church and the health of your business and the health of your family. You've got leadership that is meeting the highest biblical standards. And that's what's happening here. Let's look at it. First of all, these men must have good reputations. Now, gentlemen, some of you have had your reputations despoiled in some way in the past. You became Christians. You become men of God. 
and actually you've become very effective in ministry. But it's possible that even with all of that, with your sins forgiven, a track record that those who know you well has demonstrated that you're on another track, it's possible that your reputation could keep you from serving effectively. I, I remember a case in a previous church I served. The, the most effective evangelist in our community had been married four times. And some of us have been married four times. Okay, And we know that God forgives all that. And he, what he wants us to do is be successful in our current marriage. And this guy was. And he was a very effective evangelist. And the nominating committee in our church at that time really wanted to appoint him as an officer. But then someone said, you know, there's a text in here. It was in 1 Timothy. He has to have no handle on him. That means a good reputation. Nobody can grab a handle and say, well, look at this, you know, and jerk him around. The problem with his four his three previous wives is that two of them still lived in the community. And you had some resentful extended family members. Now, he's in Christ. He is sorry for all that. He's made amends. He's paid his alimony. He's done all he should do. But he just had a reputation that was going to disqualify him in his own community. Now, frankly, if he had moved 400 miles away, he could probably be a good officer. That was the assessment that our committee made. So it doesn't have to do necessarily with his current character. It just You have to have a good reputation. Why? If you start trying to solve conflict and people don't trust your character, you can't solve conflict because people think you don't have integrity, that you're going to play favorites, that you're not going to be loyal to what you say. So you've got to have a good reputation. That's the reason that we try to protect our sons from doing things that will despoil their reputations. It's not as though they can't be good Christian men have very solid families and all the rest. But there's some things we do sometimes that just take us in a different direction because of our reputations. And some of us are experiencing that. And I want you to know that's fine. Uh, I know guys who have had to outlive their reputations and, and have enough time to build a new reputation. And during that season, that can be a very constructive season of ministry, fruitful ministry. Like I say, this guy was a wonderful evangelist. So go about your work. Don't worry about your reputation, but just, just remember it does play in. So it has to be people of good repute, no handle on them. Secondly, notice that they must be spiritually minded, full of the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be full of the Spirit? I'd like to give, I'd like to give a suggestion here about what I think it means because Acts is full of the Spirit, Acts is full of men who are full of the Spirit. We've already seen that. Whether it's Peter or Philip or Barnabas or Paul, all the key players, we're told about them, they were guided and full of the Spirit. And here, the deacons were full of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, what it means, before we get to the three elements that I'd like to suggest, it simply means that you're opening your life up, you're giving your life to the influence of the Spirit. You're actually looking to God to fill you up and lead you. You're actually talking with Him and asking Him to come in and take over. You're acknowledging your flesh in which there is no good thing. This still is resident in your, the members of your body. And you're asking the Spirit to come in and kill the flesh and take over your life. You're very aware of that. You're very aware of your own proclivities, of your own sin, of your own flesh. And you find yourself casting yourself 
on the alien power of the Holy Spirit of God over and over again, every moment, every day, to the best of your ability. You're full of the Spirit. Now, what what does a person look like who's full of the Spirit? First of all, you're going to find a Spirit-filled character. Look in Galatians chapter 5. And we studied this some years ago in Amen. What are the fruits of the Spirit? What is the fruit, singular, fruit of the Spirit? What does a What does a fruit on the spirit tree look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? There's the character, the fruit of a man who's living a spirit-filled life, a man who's honest, a man who's principled, a man who's brotherly in his affections for his neighbor. There's his character. So the first thing about a spirit-filled person is their character looks like the Holy Spirit's character. Not perfectly, of course, but authentically. Secondly, a spirit-filled person has a missional focus. The Spirit is constantly leading us out, away from ourselves, away from our own selfish interests. When you hear Paul talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, He says of Timothy, I have no one like him who thinks not about his own interests, but about your interests. He's outwardly focused. He's thinking about others. He's on mission. That's a spirit-filled man. He's on the mission of Christ. And thirdly, there is a new boldness with a spiritually-minded or spirit-filled man. There's a boldness there. So you've got character on mission with a holy boldness. And don't you see it in these men's lives? Look at Peter. Peter was a coward. As as the Proverbs say, the, the wicked will flee at the rustling of a leaf. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Peter was fleeing at the rustling of a leaf. A little maiden woman who said, "I, you know him, don't you? No, I never, never know him. Coward. And now look at Peter. You tell us, Sanhedrin Supreme Court, should we obey you or God? Woo-hoo-hoo. He's a completely transformed man. Gentlemen, ask the Spirit to come into your life and ask Him to change your character. Ask Him to give you a look for the outside, which would mean people who are broken and hurting and needy and lost and lonely and poor. And ask Him to give you a holy boldness so that you begin to care a lot less about what the Sanhedrin says about you, and you care a whole lot more about whether God is pleased or not. So these must be spiritually-minded men. And if you're a deacon or an elder, let me tell you something. This is the most important thing. Ask the Spirit to lead you. Now, thirdly, notice they must be discerning people. That is, they're not just full of the Spirit, but they're full of wisdom. Wisdom. And we saw in our study of wisdom literature in the Old Testament a few years ago here that the summation of wisdom is in Christ. When you come into Christ, you're coming into wisdom, ancient wisdom when you come into Christ. And you can look at the book of Proverbs or Job or Ecclesiastes and look at ancient wisdom and you can say, you know, that's for me. That's my mind. That's how my mind's going to be trained. I'm going to be a man who is wise like Solomon, even more so like Jesus. He grew when he was 12 years old in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And we're to grow the same way. So these have to be men. If you're going to be an effective leader, 
You must be a man who is full of discernment, full of wisdom. You say, well, you know, some people are just naturally wiser than I am. I know that. There are a lot of people who are naturally wiser than I am. Here's the question. Am I wiser now than before I was a believer? Not am I wiser than you. That's a hopeless enterprise. But am I wiser than I was before I began to give myself to Christ? Am I seeing things I didn't see before? Do I have discernment I didn't have before? Because Christ has gotten a hold of me and jerked a knot in my tail and put me, you know, in, right side up and outside in, inside out, and he's got me going the right way now. So, I, you know, when you're walking with Christ, you should expect to have discernment that you never had before. Now, in particular, leave your finger in Acts 6, but I want you to turn with me for a moment to 1 Timothy, where we talk about deacons. Paul talks to Timothy years later about the deacons in the church, and I want you to look with me at what he says about them. Look at verse 8, and this is 1 Timothy 3, page 2330. He says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued. That is, you don't tell one person one thing and another one another one, so you can be popular with both of them. You're not double-tongued. Not addicted to much wine. doesn't say you don't drink. Baptist, I'm sorry. I, I know some things we just wish they were in the Bible, don't we? But, it, you know, you, you could say the apostle, he just didn't know any better. Uh, but he said, not addicted to much wine. Okay, so you have a glass of wine, but you don't have two, you don't have three. And you don't have to have one. Nor greedy for dishonest gain. You're not in this for your reputation or so that everyone will know how, how upstanding a citizen you are. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So, okay, so you... Maybe, you're not, maybe your strongest gift is not preaching, but that doesn't mean you don't know your Bible. No, you not only know it, you hold it with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. So, you know, it's not as though you walked into the church and, boy, you're sure are a bright, young, smart uh, guy. We'll make you a deacon. No, you better be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. There's that reputation. Their wives, oh, our wives get into this, yeah. If you're married, your wives must also be dignified, not slanderers. That's going to disqualify some deacons right there. Their wives are slanderers. Sober-minded, faithful. And then look at this. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. I want to stop right there for a moment. You want to know where you can find discernment? You can find the laboratory of someone's discernment, get into their marriage, and get into their child-rearing, get into their household. That's, that's the number one laboratory that shows you how they function. Now, does that mean that if we have Christian children, we're great leaders, and if we don't, we're failures? No, because you can't convert anybody, including your children. But if you get into a home, or you're, someone else is in your home and you're being examined, they can look at how you manage things. Look at here, it says they must manage their household well. And how do you manage a household? It begins with relationships. It begins with love in the household. And if you're going to be an effective leader in your business, if you're going to be an effective leader in your law firm, if you're going to be an effective leader in your church, you're really not going to do that without being effective at home. I had a friend, a pastor friend, we were talking about 
how you, you hire people on your staff. And one of these pastors said, I'll tell you what, I'm never hiring anybody else until I go to their city where they live and I go into their apartment or their house and I sit down and spend time with that family. Pretty good word. That's what the Bible says. So don't think that your church should just forget about your business, forget about your family, that's your own private affair. No, I'll tell you what, the way you run your business is going to end up being run just like your family, just like your household. Uh, I asked some, somebody one time when I was just getting out of seminary, how can you tell what senior minister you might want to work with when you're considering several people asking you to come on staff with them? How do you do that? And here's what the man told me. He said, you get time with him and his wife, and the way he treats his wife is the way he'll treat you eventually. Yikes. Of course, that scares the bejabbers out of me now. But it's true. The management of your household is the clearest reflection of your maturity in loving leadership. Let me tell you about our staff retreat last week. All of our program staff and pastoral staff, so maybe about 40 people and their spouses are on retreat. And uh, our speaker for the day was telling us about his own broken background. And it started with his relationship with his father. The first thing he said in telling us about all the disasters in his life, he said, it began when I was four years old. My daddy took me into his room and told me he was going to leave the house. That's where it started. Well, the rest of that morning in our small groups, we were all sharing about our own backgrounds. Let me tell you what I heard. I was in a group with five women. Why? I don't know. But I was in a group with five women. And we know how women are when it comes to sharing. They got real candid real fast. I arranged it so that I was the last to share and only had three minutes. So... Uh, <laughs> That's the way men do it. You know, it's, it's out of caring because I want to listen to everybody else, you know. So I'm a little reluctant to put my stuff out there. But these women, let me tell you what I heard. Five women, all in Christian ministry. Let me tell you what I heard. Every single one of them. You know where they started? Let me tell you about my dad. And they were talking about their brokenness. Let me tell you about my relationship with my father. Can I just ask, how many of us have daughters? Just raise your hand. We've got a bunch of women represented in this room. Can I just take a moment and let's just talk about dads and their daughters for a moment? I went to our youth department and I said to them, let me tell you what I heard last week. And I, I've always known this, but it just, I mean, it was just like thrown into my face. So I said, I want to know what you all know about dads and their daughters. Can I tell you what I got back? A survey from over 35 young women uh, who have come through our youth group. And here's the questions that had been asked them. I didn't even know this was out there in our staff. But they, they asked them, uh, they asked the girls who had a negative relationship with their father uh, what problems they experienced. Can I just give you some of the list? I doubted that I was valuable or that I could be loved because I never felt loved by my dad. Dad didn't really know me. I've always wondered if he actually loves me or if he just loves me because he has to since he's my dad. Dad was always so busy with his work that he wasn't involved in my life and he wasn't able to protect me and my heart. 
I needed my dad to protect me, but he was too busy. Dads and daughters is such an essential relationship, and since that was broken in my life, it affected my confidence, my self-esteem, and my self-worth. God has done a beautiful work in my life and in healing the wounds, but there are still scars. I always felt like because dad got annoyed with me, ignored me, or walked away from me when I was emotional, it made me feel like I was too much to be loved. Dad worked a lot and fought for his work time, but he wouldn't fight for time with me. I felt like I wasn't worth fighting for. I wish he had put family before work. I don't know how to respond to guys because I didn't have a relationship with my dad. I never felt loved by him, so I don't know how to respond when guys are interested in me. And then these same young women sort of listed the things, the times when they felt loved by their dad. I feel loved by my dad, and these are quotes. I feel loved by my dad when he was intentional in spending quality time with me. He was emotionally and physically present. He came to my games, my plays and events. He loved my mom well. He loved my mom well. He supported and encouraged me in whatever I was doing. He unconditionally loved me. He loved me after I failed and loved me when I succeeded. He set rules and boundaries that I was to follow as well as he lovingly and consistently disciplines and corrects me when I disobey. You notice that if you're a protector, you set boundaries for their protection even when they rail against you. And that was made clear in this survey. When they're emotional and they're angry at you, you just keep that smile in your heart, put your arms around them, and just keep right on going, loving them and protecting them. He took an interest in my day-to-day -day life, asking me questions and listening. He was intentional in seeking to know me and to take interest in me. He had fun with me and laughed with me. He told me he loved me and that I was beautiful all the time. He talked with me about his relationship with God and encouraged me in the Lord. He hugged me. He wrote me words of encouragement, written, email, or by text. He was my biggest fan. Those are some of the things I learned from our youth department. Here's something else I learned. That little girls who reach 35 years of age still say about their dad, especially if they're single, he's the man. So if you have a 35-year-old single daughter, let me tell you something. They need every bit much as love, love from you as your little six-year-old daughter. They're still your girl. Uh, you know, this can be <laughs> expressed in a number of ways. I, I guess I better skip that, but uh, we're running out of time. But let me just say that it's never too late. If you're 80 and you have a 55-year-old daughter, you may be amazed at what difference it makes 
when you tell them how, how, why you've admired them all these 55 years, why they're so special to you, why they're lovely to you. And of course, if you have a daughter 55, you can't lie, but tell them they're beautiful. <laughs> they need to hear that from you. And if they're single, they need your involvement in the sense that you're, you're still interested in their protection. And one thing I learned about, uh, you know, my children now are all 25 and older, but something I learned even in those teen years when you're beginning to show respect for your sons by not invading their territory and showing them that you respect their boundaries. That's important with sons. If you have a daughter, you need to come on in through those boundaries. You need to be willing to be closer to her because her, it's not because you love her more. No, it's because you are assessing her need. What your son needs from you is your respect. And he's got your admiration. And you're treating him like a man. What your daughter needs is someone to come in and love her. And pursue her. And when she's giving you all that emotional ranting, and you just want to go out the door, uh, that's the very moment you should be pursuing her. And what you're going to teach her is that any man who's worth being her partner is a man who's going to pursue her. Because that's exactly what you did. And she's going to look for someone who treats her the same way you treat her. Now, I'm looking at some of you have a bunch of daughters and a lot of experience. I only have two. But I, I found these things to be true, and I'm grateful for this research that's been done in a youth group. And I suggest that all of us realize this is of the essence of being a leader, and we'll cover the rest of it later. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be effective leaders. And we all are in various realms of our work. Help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Help us to maintain the highest standards for ourselves and for others. Enable us to be men who are spiritually minded, who are deeply discerning of the needs of other people and how to empower them as leaders as well. Help us today to be men who lay down our lives for the benefit of others, and especially those in our own household. 